Brilliant. Ooh, very loud. Good morning, everyone. It's really, really lovely to, to see you all and to be able to spend together, together today, together uh, with uh, with each of you. Um, we are really excited for today. We've got Chris Fishlock, who's going to be um, speaking uh, for us a little bit later on. I'm going to introduce him to you in a, in a few moments. Um, but before we begin, I want to uh, spend a few minutes just committing today um, to the Lord in prayer. We've been looking on Sunday mornings, haven't we, the importance of prayer in the lives of our people. And tomorrow, a sneak preview for you, uh, we're going to see as Paul in 2 Thessalonians prays that God would fulfil every resolve and every good deed from faith. See, if anything good is going to come off today, it is because God is at work. Uh, fulfilling our good desires and our, our good deeds. And so I've asked Akana to come and lead us in prayer for the day. Cheers, Akana. Thanks. Let us pray. Hebrew 13, 20, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, walking in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that you are sovereign. We praise you that you are ever graceful and indeed the God of peace. We thank you that you brought forth from the dead our eternal Savior, Jesus Christ affirming your covenant with your people to save them from their sins. We thank you for making it so that we can gather today as brothers through Christ to study and understand this wonderful privilege even more. We pray that we approach today's session with humility, with open hearts, and with minds completely free from distractions as we seek to know you more and know more about you understand and understand your will for us as men. Father, we pray that we are truly blessed and enlightened today, that this does not turn, into, turn out to be a fleeting moment, but rather we also learn to hold tight to your word, learning to create a permanent state in our hearts where our Savior Jesus is increasingly at home within us, and that this is borne out all around us in our everyday walk as Christians. Dear Father, we also pray that through our gathering today, you equip us with every, everything good to do your will, most notably the desire through ever-increasing love to encourage others through fellowship and to share the wonderful truths of the gospel with those also who are yet to know our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear Father, we give thanks for your words spoken through Chris Fishlock today. We pray for clarity of thought and speech in its delivery and that it is faithful and nourishing to our souls. We thank you that he is able to take the time to spend with us to deliver your message and encourage us in service of you. We pray for his family while he's here with us that your spirit provides them with the comfort and companionship that would otherwise they would otherwise be getting with him. We also pray for his church family at St. Nick's Coles Abbey in central London that their faith continues to increase through his teaching and as the gospel spreads, it lands on fertile hearts, creating disciple makers along the way. Finally, Father, we pray for a wonderful day here as well in Enfield, that the weather holds up and adds to a conducive environment for our fellowship today. 
that we have strong interactions between us brothers, that we go on to form even stronger bonds and relationships beyond these walls as well. That in all things we do and say today, your name alone be glorified. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brilliant, thank you, Kenna. I don't know how your weeks have been. Uh, I've had a good week. I've just got back from holiday. So, um, yeah, had a lovely week in the West Country with family. Uh, so I feel very rested. But I don't know how your weeks have been. Some of us have had good weeks, some of us have had bad weeks. Some of us um, will have had real troubles and difficulties, real anxieties weighing on us. Some of us will have had um, real joys. Uh, but however our weeks have been, it is a helpful reminder for us as we come together today that God is the same God. And the words of our first song are going to pick up on this truth. The, the chorus that we'll sing uh, a few times reminds us that there is none above him, none before him. All of time is in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. That's a wonderful truth to remind ourselves of as we begin this day. So please stand and they start some more singing together.
take a seat. Brilliant. Um, Chris, do you want to actually you've got your own mic if you need this one? So you can join us. And Chris, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much for coming. And we're uh, very much looking forward uh, to the, the day. Could you just introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about yourself, family life, and, and what you spend your days doing? Yeah, by all means. It's really nice to see everybody again and many familiar faces. Nice to see old friends and uh, meet new ones as well. So um, thank you very much indeed for the invitation. Chris Fishlock, I have a small family. Thank you for the prayers earlier already for my family. Um, that, they were fantastic prayers to, to kick us off. Thank you. I can't see. Oh yes, there we go. Thank you. Just tell me how you say your name. Yeah. Thank you. That was brilliant. Uh, brilliant way to start. Yeah, so family. Um, three teenagers. Uh, one of whom I have a tennis date with later on um, today, towards the, the, the end of the day. Um, who am I? What, what do I spend my time doing? Well, I've been a minister in central London for about uh, 20 years now, and um, found the Lord Jesus as a young child. Um, I think controversially was converted twice. The normal sort of conversion stories don't always work, do they, up front? I remember very clearly at the age of six, uh, having the gospel explained in very childlike terms, it, it made sense to me. I said sorry to um, our Heavenly Father for everything I'd done wrong. My father explained um, what sin was in childlike terms. I remember accepting Jesus as my Savior. I don't think I really grasped the significance of that until I was um, in my 20s. That was when I was converted again. Um, I realized that Jesus was not just my Savior, but my Lord. Uh, that'll be language lots of are familiar with, and that hit me very hard when I joined a Bible teaching church. Some of you will know in Central London called St. Helens, that in my, my early 20s when I arrived there to work. And um, I sort of, the things that I knew to be true and had always claimed to be true, I was a Christian as far as I was concerned, then made sense and had a, a bigger impact on my life. I gave up a lot of hypocrisy at that stage. So yes, converted twice. I did 10 years of sort of business. Um, went into ministry, as I said, 20 years ago in terms of um, teaching the Bible. So I gave up my day job and uh, now teach the Bible full-time. I think quite a few of you are aware of the, the midweek lunchtime talks going on in the city. Um, I have a privilege of being part of those sort of midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, trying to reach the working population of London. And then there's a Sunday congregation which started a few years ago. Um, so that's who I am and what I do. And um, thank you for, to many of you who come and partner with us in the city to try to reach the city um, with the gospel. And, um, okay. Brilliant. Um, and uh, so you can enter this a little bit already. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you like doing in your free time? Not that there is any. Well, tennis. Yeah, not really. I'd, I'd love to say it was my thing. It really isn't. It'll be a slightly embarrassing match where I'll try to at least keep up with my 15 year old daughter um, as she probably quite a bit better than me, but um, yeah, a little bit of tennis. Cycling, I guess, if I'm going to say I sort of claim to do anything, um, cycling uh, quite slowly around central London parks. Um, that, that's quite fun. We, we got into that as a family through lockdown. London was empty, and we just sort of cycled around central London a lot, and I've been doing that um, for, for, I guess, most of the time I've been in central London. So cycling would probably be the, the closest sort of activity close to my heart. Um, what do I really enjoy doing? I love just spending time with friends, sitting around a table, and having a meal that goes on for a lot longer than it should. That's probably the sort of the, the, the pinnacle of my, my relaxing time. Yeah. Very good. Um, Fish and chips later, I gather. Is that right? Lunch. And I've seen the list at the back. It's just that if you claim that you've got a burger when you haven't, have you seen that? I haven't. You don't, you don't get away with it. Look at this. Oh, wow. Cotton chips, sausage and chips. <laughs> there's, no, there's no 
There's no hiding. I'm, I'm clearly having fish and chips, so there we go. I look forward to that later. Um, uh, so, some people may have joined the dot six, it's been mentioned, but um, so, you, so you're the pastor of St. Nick's, because um, you might have heard this, because one of the churches we pray for on a Sunday. Um, how are things church life at the moment? Yeah, thank you for asking. We started our Sunday congregation from scratch. That We don't really have language within our constituency that I'm aware of. Sort of, if you're not a plant, what are you if you just sort of start? There was nothing going on on Sundays we started. We're a sort of ground up initiative, a grassroots um, sort of start, something like that. Five years ago, uh, 20 people from six different churches, we sort of started something. Uh, that was really fun. Things are, to answer your question, things are going well. We all had challenges. Uh, what was it? COVID or something? That happened, didn't it? And that, that was um, a little bit distracting. Uh, and certainly, our, our demographic is, is young. Our average age is half my age. So um, we, we have a, a lot of people in their, their mid-20s. And they were pretty gung-ho, I guess, you know, when it came to COVID. So there was no real risk or problem with meeting. Um, so we met um, pretty much every Sunday. I think there was a few when we weren't actually allowed. We didn't then, but pretty much every other time. Um, and we remained in good spirits. Sunday remained pretty pretty sort of buoyant, encouraged. Uh, midweek has had the bottom taken out of it, as people who are part of midweek will know. Lots of people working from home. I think a lot of people have been really, really scared um, by sort of government messaging and things and, and, and have stuck at home and will stay at home probably. That's a real shame for the gospel witness um, in central London. So we're doing well on Sundays, midweek. Um, please pray that Christians would re-engage with gospel activity in the city. Um, thank you for many of you who are doing that. There's a massive, needy mission field out there. So. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. That's, that's great. Um, we're going to come back up in just a yes. moment. But beforehand, Derek is going to uh, come and read uh, today. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be spending all day at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, Derek's going to come up and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, of course. Thank you. Reading from Matthew chapter 5, that's page 976, verse 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, are, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, are, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sermon on the Mount. We shall spend as Rich says, a few, uh, three sessions in this introduction. We're going to go um, twice in the reading we just heard uh, before lunch, and then we'll extend that a little bit to the end of the introduction uh, after 
lunch as well. I hope it's a, a useful and edifying time to go deep into what I guess are quite familiar um, verses, well-known sort of part of the Bible. Um, you may find this handout, um, which Mark has put together, thank you very much, uh, useful sort of inside page, talk one, verses five to six. I suppose this sermon is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave. I don't think many people in the world would dispute that. I mean, picture the crowds gathered there that day as as Jesus sort of went up the mountain. I mean, it must have been one of the most talked about moments for a long time to have gathered such a big crowd as he did. One commentator puts it like this, with beautiful simplicity, using terms any age could understand Jesus brought blessing rather than condemnation having endured a lifetime of verbal assaults by scribes and Pharisees the multitude who met on the mount must have thought they had died and gone to heaven Jesus's words were wonderful and welcoming and soothing nothing had been heard like that before Um, I hope this morning to sort of whet your appetites in the Sermon on the Mount. And and I hope it will encourage you to sort of really pour over these verses. They are rich beyond imagination. Uh, Perhaps something you might want to sort of think about uh, through the week as you come back to you in private times, in sort of quiet times, devotions, that sort of thing. Let's go straight to the key verse in our section right now. Maybe the key verse of this introduction. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst means to greatly desire. More than anything, Jesus says, greatly desire righteousness. It should be the heartbeat of our lives, if you like. This is the attribute above all other attributes that we should desire and crave. And so a moment of of deep personal reflection is called for at the start of this day. Um, Perhaps still a little bit in shock. Saturday morning you find yourself um, sitting in front of Bible teaching again. Put to one side everything that you say you believe. Put to one side all of your sort of church commitments. Put to one side whatever sort of rotors and um, service you're on. I gather from Mark that it's a big mission every Sunday to get Sunday sort of set up. Um, and then pack down afterwards. Put all of that to to one side. Christian friends, um, attendance regularly at church. And ask yourself this question. What is it that means more to you than anything else in the world? What drives ambition? What consumes your thoughts? What distracts you in the middle of the day? You know, as you sort of go through the busyness of life and and have the, the, the demands of the boss or the the demands of the family, whatever it is, as those things sort of press upon you, what sort of distracts you and your sort of your thought life goes to whatever it is? Let me tell you about um, Socrates, Greek philosopher. He tells the story of a young man who bounds up to him one day, really, really hungry for knowledge. He wanted to acquire knowledge. He went to Socrates for the answer. um, And Socrates took him to a river. He said, right, I'm going to show this this, 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 this young man um, how to acquire knowledge. And he took him to this river. And the story goes, um, he grabbed this young man sort of by the scruff and pushed him under the river. And, um, you know, until he was sort of fully submerged and just held him there. 
And um, the man began to struggle a little bit, as you would. He wasn't expecting anything. He was expecting an eloquent answer and got this sort of, you know, cold um, bath that morning. And um, after the man, the story goes, had struggled for about 30 seconds, Socrates still held him until it got a little bit frantic, and then he pulled him up. And he said to the young man, when you thought you were drowning, what one thing did you want most of all? The man gasping for breath, air, I wanted air. Socrates said, when you want knowledge as much as you wanted air, then you will get it. Look at verse six again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think the challenge that Jesus is giving us in this first section, make your deepest longing, not not for air, for righteousness, make your desire, make that thought and that thought alone the greatest whim, the greatest distraction that you could possibly have. That is the path, says Jesus, to true satisfaction in this world. Um, That's where this whole sort of section is heading, and we'll come back to the big idea in a few moments. Let's just um, sort of set the scene a little bit, because I realise we're diving into chapter 5, and chapter 5 always assumes that you sort of, you know, have some knowledge of at least chapters 1 to 4, so I won't go through all of chapters 1 to 4, but let me just um, put verses 1 and 2 in context, because in a sense, verse 1 and 2 builds on everything we've seen in chapters 1 to 4. Verse 1, chapter 5, seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught him, saying. Now, there's all sorts of, all sorts of ideas going on there. And assuming we had spent time in chapters 1 to 4, lots of ideas would now suddenly be sort of coming to mind. Let me just give you a recap of some of the things that should be flying through our our heads at this point. Um, We're on the first point at this stage. Jesus ascends the mountain. The final stage of salvation history is, is here. The final stage of salvation history is here. You see, from the start of his gospel, Matthew has carefully shown us how Jesus's life has many similarities to the life of Moses. That's a very important comparison at this point. Um, There are many. Here are a few. Firstly, Matthew gives us a quite detailed description of Jesus' birth. He spends chapters 1 and 2 doing that. That doesn't happen very often in the Bible. You don't get birth stories very often. But you do every now and then. You know who also had a a big baby story? Moses. Who are you going to say? (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, Samuel. Uh, yeah, but not relevant. Moses. <laughs> Moses is the character. And of course, um, Moses, you know, we know lots of detail about Moses' um, birth that we get told in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, secondly, Moses and Jesus, what happened sort of just after their birth? Well, they were both threatened with death. Pharaoh's edict, uh, if you know the story, the beginning of Exodus, all Hebrew children should be thrown into the Nile. Matthew records what happens just after Jesus' birth story. Well, Matthew records the annihilation of the children of Bethlehem. Thirdly, Moses and Jesus both escape the death threat. Amazingly, Moses escapes by, well, the basket and then in the end getting out of Egypt. Um, And then Jesus, of course, escapes the death threat by going into Egypt. Fourthly, Um, Both Moses and Jesus go through huge periods of temptation, struggle, hardship in the wilderness. Um, Fifthly, both go through significant periods of lack of food. 
40 years, Moses and the people of Israel, 40 days of fasting for Jesus. Sickly, both Jesus and Moses crossed the Jordan to sort of inaugurate their new sort of ministry. Um, that happens significantly for both characters. And then seventhly, of course, as we come to chapter 5, verse 1, the mountain. It's a huge signpost for another significant moment in salvation history. Here it is. The final stage, I'd like to suggest, of salvation history is here. And so just think for a moment about the significance of the teaching that's being delivered. Given the direct comparison that Matthew wants us to make with the character of Moses, what did Moses do on the mountain? The law, the Ten Commandments famously, and lots of supplementary detail and teaching which went on and on for pages and pages in your Bibles. What was the law there for? Well, the law was there to form God's people, to create Israel. Moses was heralded as the redeemer of God's people. He led them out of captivity. He was, in a sense, their saviour. And now here is Jesus stepping into Moses' sandals, if you like, up on the mountain, not ten commandments, but ten beatitudes. Beautiful words accompanied by challenging teaching to last into eternity. Here is the new epoch of salvation history, says Jesus. Here is the sermon that forms God's new people. If the law formed Israel, then the Beatitudes form Christians. And so Jesus ascends the mountain. And given everything that he, that's been said in, in Matthew, do you see the significance of this as we begin? It's easy to miss that as you read verses 5, uh, chapter 5, 1 and 2. But it's meant to build excitement, anticipation. And I think even more so as you get to the end of verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them saying. They were sort of left hanging. What's he going to say? In Moses' day, God spoke to Moses and Moses wrote down things on, on tablets and then he came down the mountain and communicated them to the people. In Jesus' day, God's son speaks directly to those gathered. What a privilege. This is a new phase of salvation history. Here is the long-awaited king. Here is the Messiah. And he's come to inaugurate this new phase of salvation history. Moses and the law. Moses and the law brought a vital awareness of sin. The law was there to show sin. And so it's hardly surprising that the, as the awareness of sin was built, law after law after command after command, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, and more and more trouble, more and more trouble. No wonder the final word of the Old Testament, you know what it is, as you get to the final book of the Old Testament, the final word of the final book is destruction. Well, what a contrast that the first word of this sermon, blessing. Here is hope. Here is a fresh start. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he puts it like this as Jesus begins his sermon. He said, now that's a fine, sweet and friendly beginning to his teaching and preaching. For he goes at it, not like Moses or a teacher of the law with commands and threats, but in the very friendliest of way, with nothing but attractions and allurements and lovely promises. And that brings us to the, um, the second point. Here is Jesus preaching his most famous sermon. The challenge, as we begin our time together today, focuses on our attitude of heart. I think that's what the first four sentences um, really achieve. This is the kingdom standard. 
Here we are being challenged on the underlying attitude of heart. I, I think this raises a, a lot of questions and we will spend some time really sort of thinking about how to read this sermon. I'm going to sort of try and build up a little bit of a, a method for reading the sermon through the three sessions. I hope that's useful. Um, I realise it raises a lot of questions about how, how to do that. I think, I think these Beatitudes, as they're often called, these blessing statements, they break into two halves. Uh, the first four, which we just heard read, verses three to six, it's all about the disciples' attitude. And then after coffee, later on this morning, we'll look at the rest, the disciples' conduct. That's verses 7 to 12. So who's the sermon for? Well, large crowds were gathered. I mean, here we have, you know, who knows how many hundreds or potentially thousands were gathered there. There seems to be teaching that are very, that's very specifically aimed at the disciples. And we're told, aren't we, that the disciples are there. I think, I think the idea is that the disciples are there in the front row with lots of interested observers listening in. It's a typical sort of church meeting. We've got, you know, God's disciples gathered with lots of interested observers listening in. This is teaching for the Christian and the interested observer alike. Nine times we get that word blessing. Blessed, blessed, blessed. What a wonderful way to open a sermon. But what does it mean? Some translations go for a translation of happy. And that is true. Um, what blessing means is very closely related to happiness. The uh, problem with that, I think that, that these words, you know, words convey meanings, don't they? And I think the way that we use happy, happiness, uh, is quite a subjective term. And I think we, 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 we are, our feelings are dominated then by the sort of subjective um, sort of sense of, of what makes us feel happy and that sort of thing. So I don't think happiness is going to be the best way for us to really understand this. I'm going to go for something else. Um, this was driven as a result of sort of looking at the language in, in the original context and reading lots of sort of commentators and their work on it and trying to get the sense of the meaning because it's a very positive thing given the contrast with Moses. Yet it's a consistent thing. It's not saying, you know, Moses did this and this is the opposite. There's somehow there's a continuation um, which we'll deal with more as we go on. Jonathan Pennington has written one of the most recent and very, very helpful summaries. He uh, writes his whole commentary actually just on, on these Beatitudes, these, uh, this, this reading we just had. And he suggests, rather than the word blessed, that we use the word flourishing. I think that's very helpful, certainly better than happiness. The problem with flourishing in my mind, though, is that it's, again, not really a word we use particularly regularly today. And if we do, we're probably talking about things flourishing in our gardens rather um, than our sort of children or our church families or our um, people in our small groups, things like that. Another um, chap that you may be aware of, he teaches at Proc Trust, he's called Ben Cooper. He actually did his PhD in, um, in Matthew's Gospel. And unlike most people who do PhDs in the Bible, um, he's a really good Bible teacher and very much sort of on our side. He's come up with a sort of a variation, which I think is really, really helpful. He says, to be blessed means to be on the best possible path in life. Now, I think that really, really captures it, okay? Not just happiness, although that's true. Not just a matter of flourishing, although that's true. To be on the best possible path in life. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be on the best possible path in life, in everything, here is how you do it. Here is how you get it. The best possible path in life. So let me see if you say a few words on, on how we should read. As I say, we're going to develop this a bit as we go. In the first instance... 
the sermon holds out a standard. And I think absorbing these ideas leads us to develop the hunger and thirst, which I think is really at the heart of this right attitude, the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember Socrates pushing that guy under the water, desperate for air. We should be desperate for righteousness. That will put us on the best possible path in life. You want a life that will satisfy you at every level. This is how you get it, says Jesus. Let's just spend a few minutes looking at um, some of the, the details here. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Verse 3. To be poor in spirit. What a way to start. To be poor in spirit means to know, to accept that we are spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves. A recognition that you cannot do anything in and of yourself to please God. Poor. That's the starting point. You are poor, says Jesus. You want to be in the the most satisfying path through life? Know this. Poor bankrupt, poor in spirit. So all the training that you probably had in your offices and certainly through um, primary and secondary school that builds self-esteem and tells you that you're worth something and you should be confident because of who you are, shelve it all. It's not about you can. Jesus says it's all about the fact that you can't. That's the natural starting point. You see, every world religion offers you a ladder and it says, come and climb. And Jesus says, Come and take a knee. What a way to start. It goes against everything that you would expect. Come and take a knee. There is nothing you can do. Don't even try to put your first foot on the bottom rung of the so-called ladder that doesn't exist. Take a knee. It's a call for humility. A recognition that there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can offer. And so here the confident and the rich and the beautiful and the successful count for nothing. They have nothing to offer. Jesus says, poor in spirit. It's the great leveler. Why is it the great leveler? Because everyone can play on Jesus' terms. Verse 4, those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn. You're on the best possible path in life. You'll be fully satisfied at every level if you're somebody who mourns, says Jesus. Quite literally, that means um, happy are the sad. In Greek, there are nine different words that express sorrow. But out of the nine different words, the one used here, pentheo, mourn, it's the strongest, it's the most severe term that can be used. It represents sort of the deepest, most heartfelt grief. And generally, the only time you would use this word is if somebody had died. Very strong words. Um, George Whitfield, he was preaching for the first time in the open air to the Kingswood miners in Bristol. I love this story. And um, he wrote about his time later. You can imagine all these miners, they, they'd been sort of stuck in the centre of the earth for most of the day. They'd come out and amazingly, you know, totally exhausted, black as anything because of the soot. Um, they, they stood there and... Um, and listened to George Whitfield preach because he had this great reputation. And he was teaching them about sin and it was convicting them, cutting them to the heart. And he wrote this later. He said, he said, the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks, hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction. It's that sense of sort of inner self-worth being destroyed, deep humility being achieved, mourning in the face of sin. What would cause 
us to be so sad. Jim Packer, Christian writer, puts it like this. A sense of defilement before God is not a morbid thing. It's not neurotic or unhealthy in any way. It is natural. It is realistic. It is healthy. And it is a true perception of our natural condition. Jesus says, be somebody who mourns in the first instance. It seems to be the second stage of the spiritual blessing. Um, and I think it sort of follows on, doesn't it? Because if the first one, you see, it's one thing, isn't it? It's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It's another to grieve and actually mourn over it. The first one then goes right to the sort of um, the center of our understanding. And the second one shows. The poor in spirit then develops into mourning. Uh, you sort of see this in most church services. We start, don't we, with a public act of confession. That leads to a state of what's technical contrition or feeling remorseful. Okay, we say sorry and then it hits us like a freight train. Those miners with the tears. Oh wow, it's not just words. This has actually consumed me. I'm deeply, deeply sorry. Then verse five, meekness. Um, the surrounding Greek culture, of course, what would they have thought about meekness? They would have despised it. The idea of being meek, what sort of following, what sort of people are going to be gathered together and asked to be meek? Jesus says, show perfect gentleness, perfect self-control. If you're somebody who's been brought to this point of poor in spirit and then showing that in, in you know, this, this, this empathetic and emotional reaction of, of, of mourning, you know, really gripped by a contrition, well, that will cash out in meekness, gentleness, perfect courtesy and self-control. The Christian preacher Lloyd-Jones, he puts it like this. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he cannot boast. It also means that he does not assert himself. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possession, his status in life. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself and his own interests, he is not always on the defence. Lloyd-Jones continues, we spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves, but when a man becomes meek, he has finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether, and you come to see, says Lloyd-Jones, that you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realise that nobody can touch you at that point. Here, says Jesus, is the start to the best possible path in life. Meekness is a strange thing, though, isn't it? Um, it's, it's just not a word we normally think about or use. Uh, I think it's certainly a despised um, attribute in our world today. I seriously doubt it's anything you've ever used in an appraisal to try to make yourself look good in front of your boss. Um, let me say a little bit more about meekness. Another commentator puts it like this. It's not cowardice emotional flabbiness or lack of conviction, complacency or timidity or the willingness to have peace at any cost. Meekness does not suggest indecisiveness or wishy-washiness or a lack of confidence. The meek person is gentle and mild in his own cause, though, here we go, this is the right perspective change, though he may be a lion in God's cause or in defending others. Jesus says that's something to aim for, meekness. 
So there you go. There's a little bit of an introduction. Verse 3, poor in spirit. Verse 4, mourning. Verse 5, meekness. This is what we need to mull on, to meditate on. This is what will cause us to crave righteousness, gasping for it. There is the standard. Aim for that standard. The problem is, no sooner do we aim for that standard, think, yes, that's what I'm all about. What happens as soon as you aim for any standard? Well, we fail. The attributes of Jesus' kingdom are, in the first instance, impossible standards. But here's the fascinating thing. Aiming for these standards, you remember how it starts off, take a knee. The problem is, we can't even do that, because we're so full of pride. We're so full of our own sort of self-worth and self-admiration. Even as mature Christians, we, we think something of ourselves. And so the irony is, we do want to just step up a little bit on the ladder and think a little bit more highly of ourselves. And so the irony is we fail this standard because we're not able to go low enough. Because we actually think too highly of ourselves. It's not at this point that we can't go high enough. It's that we can't go low enough because of our pride. The Christian life begins with the realisation of our innate inability to meet God's standards. We fail at every level. That is the start. What does that do? Well, that drives us to Jesus. Anyone that takes this teaching to heart says, Jesus, help me. And that must be the right foundation. And that makes sense as Jesus stands there, the new epoch of salvation history, rather than, you know, Moses speaking through the tablets, you know, I got these from God and I'm speaking this all to you. Here is God's son speaking directly, depend on me. Make me your everything. I've got the key to the most satisfying way to live your life. Depend on me. We see also there in the sermon that the, the standard must be applied to our lives. We can't just say it's an impossible standard and end there. You see, the standard must be applied to our lives, not to make us members, but to challenge us as disciples, to keep us growing, maturing. That's what it means to be blessed. And that's an idea that we'll develop. Um, let's just observe, though, as we draw to a close, let's just observe the benefits here. The benefits are out of all proportion for anything you could ever imagine. Okay, it's not the sort of the, the five-star badge, employee of the month sort of stuff here. Jesus says, verse 3, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Verse 4, comfort. Verse 5, um, just in case you're in any doubt about the sort of the material blessing that's available for those who truly follow Christ, inheritors of the earth. Verse 5. Verse 6, satisfaction. There is nothing more that you can be offered. You've been given heaven and earth, comfort and satisfaction. This is the best possible path in life, and Jesus does not sell us short. Everything that you could put all your energy and time into working for is yours as you come to Jesus, he says, through the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's quite something really, isn't it? I mean, this really is the secret to success in life. That's what Jesus is laying out here. So back to that opening illustration. You remember Socrates. He's got that man under the water. What is it to crave righteousness, to hunger and thirst? Well, I'd like to suggest it means two things. Here are some things that we can think about. Two things as we close. To crave that righteousness more than anything, it must mean in the first instance, you can't do anything for other people till you've sorted yourselves out. A righteous status for ourselves before God. That is where we all must begin. Whatever stage of the Christian life we're at, 
We should crave more than anything this right standing before God. That is something, of course, that Jesus enables through the cross. As we realise our inability, we depend on him. That makes us right and that keeps us right. And the Christian life involves coming back to that truth every single day of our lives, dependent on him. That is what it is to crave righteousness. I mean, it's the old illustration, isn't it? You know, you can't, you can't pull other people into the lifeboat till you're there yourself. You've got to keep depending on Jesus. But secondly, um, having kept, maintained, encouraged the righteous status for ourselves before God, a righteous status for others makes all the sense in the world. That will happen as these truths that Jesus is teaching his, um, his, his, his disciples in the gathered crowd, that will happen as these truths are taken out to the world. That is how to make a difference. I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it? As, as Jesus goes through Matthew's gospel, of course, as you know, it's wonderful teaching. It's, it's carefully organized. Um, it builds to the time, of course, when Jesus goes to the cross intentionally. Why does he go to the cross? Because we failed in being able to do what he asks. He takes the punishment we deserve. He rises from the dead to prove that he's done it. And what does he do then? He takes the disciples, he gathers them and says, right, go and teach the world everything. Go and teach the world everything that I have taught you. Baptize people, teach them to follow me. The gospel is taken out. That is how a righteous status for others is achieved in the end. And so here we get the Sermon on the Mount. It should introduce us to Jesus and drive us to Jesus and keep us with Jesus and provide all the comfort we crave, the satisfaction that we want. This, says Jesus, is the best possible path in life. Well, why don't I pray and then reach back to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, as he stood on the mountain those years ago um, to the gathered crowds and explained what it is to be one of yours, one of his. We do pray that we are those who um, never stop being hungry, thirsty for righteousness. May we be those who depend on Jesus daily. And may that great um, desire that longing for this righteous status. May that drive us out into the world to be useful as we explain this wonderful truth to others too. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.